Hey, everybody. As you know, we are working on the final episode of Tripod. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And I wasn't planning on making any other episodes or doing any more interviews aside from the finale that we're working on about the indigenous perspectives of the tricentennial of New Orleans and living in New Orleans slash Louisiana in 2018. But one of my favorite authors came to town, Kiese Lehman. He is a Mississippi-based writer who's just released a new memoir titled Heavy, an American Memoir. And he's also the author of the award-winning novel Long Division, which is incredible, and a book of essays called How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. That's the first work of Kiese Lehman's that I read, and that is how I fell in love with his writing. Um, he was here uh, a couple times uh, in New Orleans recently. He had a book signing for Heavy at the Garden District Bookshop, where local writer Maurice Ruffins interviewed him, and he also... Uh, teaches at NOCA and at Carver. So he's here sometimes from where he is based in Mississippi to come uh, be with the young people at those schools. He also was here for the National Humanities Conference. They have their annual CAPS lecture, and he was in conversation at the Mahalia Jackson Theater with another award-winning novelist, Jasmine Ward. When I found out that he was going to be here, I really, really wanted to have the opportunity to talk to him, and I'm so glad that we made it happen. Um, Bear with me, this conversation is, we kind of just jumped into it, so there might be some things that don't have all the context that you would want. Um, I produced a shorter version that aired on WWNO, but I thought I would just put the whole conversation here for you to hear, especially if you're a fan of Kiese. You'll hear him sometimes refer just to Jasmine, and that and that's him referring to Jasmine Ward. And, uh, you know, we bounce around a little, but I think if you're familiar with his work or, you know, or if you've heard anything about his new book, which I know has been receiving a lot of acclaim, uh, as it should, then I know that you will find this interesting. Um, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to him. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with you all right now. And enjoy. So I went to the event at Garden District Books with Maurice, who I also know. I love Maurice, too. Um, And I was struck by a lot of what you said and a lot of the conversation. But one of the things that I've thought about almost every day since is something that you mentioned linking the idea of trust and honesty and dishonesty and abuse. Mm -hmm. And I've been wanting to ask you about that since, you know, this idea that anytime you're straying from truth, you're inviting abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me more how you've been thinking about that or what that means to you? Uh, yeah, thanks. That's, that's a big, um, in my life, I realized that obviously the times that I've been most like abusive to myself or to other people emotionally, I've also been times when I've literally known right from wrong, known what people would consider the truth and like try to, try to shift that, right? Like try to tell myself what I know is you know, a circle is a square. Try to tell somebody else what they saw as square is a circle. 
And I think sometimes we can say a lot about what that is. But for me, I need to call it what that is, which is abuse, particularly if you're doing it to a body or a person who would never do that to you. You know, I think we should stray away from calling ourselves abusives because we don't want to deal with the ramifications of that. But uh, I think we do spend a lot of time abusing ourselves. I know I do. And sometimes abusing the people closest to us. I don't have kids, but, you know, I've had friends and partners who I've not physically abused, but definitely like intellectually, psychologically and emotionally withhold what they knew was the truth, what I knew was honest in the truth. And to me, that's a lot of things. One thing it is, is abusive. And so I feel like I can reckon with it if I call it what it is. I've seen you speak maybe three times now. Mm-hmm. And um, something I'm always inspired by is you saying pretty off the bat, you know, that just because you write about truth, right. it doesn't mean that you are always truthful. No, I think it's hard. I mean, I want to I wanna make sure I'm not lying now. Like, I, I want to always be working toward honesty. But part of that means I need to tell people who hoist me up on some pedestal of like moral uh, cleanliness that I'm working, which means sometimes I'm going to be fucked up. Do you know? Oh, can I cuss? Okay. Um, And that doesn't, that's not trying to give myself license to, but it's also just trying to say like, you know, like Jasmine, like uh, Jasmine, as you can tell to me is up on a pedestal. I don't want anybody to tell me Jasmine lies or Jasmine's fucked up to anybody on earth. I don't want to hear that shit. But I might need, I mean, I'm not saying she is, I'm just saying, but I might need to hear that, right? And I think we just do the same thing with people close and near. And so I just, I, I, I want to work on being honest with myself and honest with my people, honest with my mom, my grandmom and all of them. But to do that, I need to admit that most things in this culture encourage me to, to be dishonest, like, like violently dishonest, not physically violent, but like, you know, in terms of like emotional, psychological violence, like super dishonest. I think the nation encourages us to be super dishonest. That's what I've been thinking about since your talk is this idea of honesty not being valued as an American custom. Like maybe it's happening in individual homes, but if if the country has been built essentially on a lie that is perpetuated, that that has actually seeped into our social interactions. I mean, look at all of the maxims, right? Like tomorrow is the first day of the rest of your life. No, it's not. Like, like the days that came before it actually matter. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, God bless America. Why? Why? If God, if America, if you want to believe in American exceptionalism, which is what most people believe in, and you purport to be some sort of Christian, shouldn't God be blessing like places and countries that have less resources? I'm just saying, like, it's so easy to look at the ways we value things that are completely deceptive, right? Like, and so. That does seep into and I think shapes relationships between people. And so I'm not even that's all I'm just trying to say. I'm not trying to have this conversation about how we can love Republicans more and all that kind of shit. Like I want to talk about like how, you know, if we purport to have the same politics, like can we really work ruggedly and messily on loving one another? If we have if we if we say we love each other, we say we believe the same things. Let's talk about how hard it is to actually love one another. And I think if we do that as organizations, as people, as in relationships, I think we then become not just stronger, but more elastic and actually like heavier, which sometimes is what you need in a nation that is so committed to death, deception, and destruction of vulnerable people and vulnerable sensibilities. Not just vulnerable people, but vulnerable sensibilities. You know what I'm saying? So that's just what I believe. 
I mean, on that note, this is also a big question, but you know, you've played a lot with time travel in your fiction. And there's this idea that was talked about tonight with you and Jasmine, you know, the linking of the past and the present, how often that doesn't happen and how much the past matters, which you also just said. And something that I've been thinking about a lot over the past few years of doing this history show is continuing to see how everything is the same, right? So what do you what do you think about when people say when when Barack Obama says, and I'm going to butcher that famous line now what's the something of something that bends towards justice oh the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice that's a lie that's just a lie like you know i mean i understand why you want that to be true but that's the thing about us we can't we need to sometimes say like i want here's what i want to be true i want the moral arc of the universe to bend toward justice that's a different sort of delivery than being like the moral arc. fuck how do you tell show me how that's true in this country Right. Like in this country, I've seen like sometimes small groups of dedicated people work hard in spite of the majority of people to ensure healthy choice, second chances and good love for vulnerable people. That does not mean that the moral arc that means that like (laughs) sometimes really small groups of committed Americans work hard to make America better, which means the majority of Americans most of the time don't. That's not even smart. That's just descriptive. You know what I'm saying? But we'll let motherfuckers describe some shit that we know is wrong. It's like that time Hillary Clinton was like, America is great because America is good. I teach English. You know what I'm saying, fam? Like, that, that, I don't even understand the logic of that quote. America is great because America is good. And everybody, like, I understand pep rallies. I love pep rallies. But, like, sometimes we got to be like, we had a pep rally. Like, we're not doing, like, this, you know, moral reckoning thing we say we're doing. So... But the wonderful thing is we can, and we're here because some people have. But that doesn't mean, like, that the nation has, you know? I mean, we see that in now South the most. Like, yeah, so. Something else that came up in the talk with Maurice that went a bunch of different ways that I wanted to uh, ask you about again, the idea that um, the South is finally having its moment, or that the South is finally coming back. And... I remember walking away from that being like, I don't, I still don't know what that means mm-hmm. or if it's good right. or right. what it means. <laughs> so Yeah, I don't know what that means either. That's a great, I should, man, we should have brought that up tonight. Um, so I think what people think it means is it looks like black writers from the South are getting national and international acclaim, young black, youngish black writers from the South. Um, and I think youngish writers from the South actually are getting lots of national acclaim. And I think people want to say, I think we always want to be like, oh, look, like this new, this this means like we're turning a page. And maybe we are. I don't know. I think there's a market out there now for like our stories, but that means I think people want to read. I think people from the South want to read a lot of stuff from people from the South, particularly I think like from like, you know, vulnerable bodies, be they like folks of color, black folks, indigenous folk, queer folk from down here. I think there's more of like a desire to read those stories now. But again, like if if you remember that question, I was I don't know. I'm not I'm not sure if it is market driven or people driven. I want to believe that it's people driven and the market is following the people. I think Black Lives Matter has a lot to do with a lot of like current sort of fascination with like the interiority of black people's lives but i i don't know it's kind of weird because jasmine's first book came out 
with Agate, which is independent press out of Chicago. She tried to get it other places. That's where she went. My first book, both of my first books came out with that same press, which means, and, and there's different stories for both of all three of those books, but which means like, they're like, and I had my book at Penguin, but they were like, pretty much take the Mississippi out of that book. So my, my story is like, I know just a few years ago, the market was like, we don't want to hear that Mississippi stuff. And now, you know, they do. <laughs> and I don't know why. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't, I don't think it's just because like we got good at writing in the last few years. I mean, I want to ask you what you think. I, well, I was going to say, it's, I don't think it's that either. Yeah, like, I don't <laughs> think that's what, I don't, so I don't know. But, but what I do know is like, there's still a lot of stories out there that are not being, I think there's still a lot of stories out there that we aren't listening to because I still think people tell their stories. They tell them to each other, they write, write them. So I think there's lots of people out there writing these stories, but just because like, you know, just because Jasmine has won the NBA twice and just because, you know, Tiari got the Oprah book and, you know, Maurice's book is about to be incredible and, you know, people are responding positively to heavy. I don't think we need to make believe that, like, that means all kinds of people from the South are being heard because they not. All those people are super, liter super literary people who went to, like, writing programs, two or three writing programs, all of those people. Like, there's still people out here who are telling dope stories who didn't go to no programs. Are they are we really listening to them? I don't think so. You know, and also, you know, the the pros and cons of creating this bulk like the South, like writers of the South. When when you go in, like you all were talking about Mississippi versus Louisiana versus yeah. perceptions yeah. of New Orleans yeah. and how that's a thousand different worlds. That's so true. And I'm curious, you're working with college students right now yeah. that live in Mississippi. Yeah. What are some of the perceptions you've observed that young people college students in Mississippi think about New Orleans today? Well, to, get, uh, to get to that question, and I also work with high school students in New Orleans, you know, like the 11th graders at Carver and with the uh, all the kids over in the creative writing program at NOCA. So that's mind-blowing to, to see the way those two really different schools of kids are using words to try to tell sort of similar stories. Um, but you know when my when my students write about New Orleans, honestly they they're using like the spectacle of New Orleans as a portal of entry into other stuff. So like they all I mean they're always writing about Mardi Gras, they're always writing about Bourbon Street, they're always writing about um, what do you call it the uh, second line, you know. And then they're trying to use that to go into other things. And my thing as a teacher is I'm like. I don't even know if the like if that's like a really interesting entry point anymore into New Orleans because New Orleans stories are being you know what you know we can argue about whether or not the stories people from New Orleans are value are being told but there's stories being told so I don't think you need to use like the spectacle of Mardi Gras or Bourbon Street or Second Line to get into like stuff here anymore I mean you definitely don't you know I mean <laughs> yeah because whether it's television I think whether it's literature. And especially music, I think people have like ideas about New Orleans that go beyond those sort of like really electric things. So I'm always just trying to tell my students, not just New Orleans, but especially when you write myself, like don't just use that shit just to get into people because I think you can start with the people and go out instead of like starting with the spectacle and going in. Because I don't think this, I don't think people who read about the spectacle are really even that interested in like outsiders writing about Mardi Gras. <laughs> You know, but that's what people want to write about, my, my students. And then they want to 
talk about personalities and all that shit, but like, why is Mardi Gras, why, why is Mardi Gras cradling that? You know, I'm not trying to be like the stooge, but you ask me and in my classes, I kind of have no, to be like, yeah. you know, encouraging people to do different stuff. So New Orleans is still a big, a big thing people write about in my, in my creative writing program and graduate students and undergrads. And sometimes they do it well, but usually they, they do it sort of easy, I think. I, th I think they do it in a way that, like, if people from New Orleans read that shit, they'd be like, no. That's what I think they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it's a little bit of this, like, glorified thing. Yeah. And people, I mean, but New Orleans is one of those places. People are writing. I mean, people, I think, I've been teaching that for 15 years. People who never been to New Orleans write stories placed in New Orleans, which is really interesting to me. Um, Brooklyn is another place. Like, a lot of people I know who've never been to Brooklyn place their stories in Brooklyn. So it's interesting the places that I think get literary designation, even you know, for better and worse. You know, people ain't placing stories in Jackson at all. I never read a story placed in Jackson in all in 15, 16 years of teaching, um, you know. So I'm not sure what that means, but I do know that they, that means that they think there's a richness there and they just need to say the word or say the specific words to like signal richness as opposed to like showing the kind of richness that I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, I'll ask you uh, one more because okay. then I want to let you go. This is a uh, more personal. Okay. But you know, clearly you don't shy away from vulnerable topics when it comes to your writing, especially in nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, before I read Long Division, I read How to Slowly Kill Yourself mm -hmm. and Others in America. Oh. You don't shy away from from personal stories and you know that are traumatic. Right. Um, and I'm curious, what was different for you about approaching vulnerability concerning your physical body? Oh, Lord. Um, that, yeah. It, I mean, so I, I wanted to do in heavy, I wanted to do in How to Solely Cure Yourself and Others what I did in heavy, but I was just too scared. Um, I was too scared to have people look at my body, look at my relationship with my mother, look at my relationships with my money, look at my relationships with like my partners. So the hardest parts to write in that book are the parts where I talk about working hard, getting money, taking care of my family, and then becoming an ad addicted to gambling and giving all my money away, like every fucking dime of it, every dime. And this also happened with my when it's it happened at the tail end of like what I now call like disorder eating, you know, I was starving myself. I was eating once every three days. I was down to like two percent body fat and I was just running myself into the ground and my body just gave out. My legs gave out. You know, I had all kind of weird scar, uh, stress fractures, breaks, growths in my hip. And when my body and my legs broke, I, I I found that same sort of euphoria in gambling. And I thought it was because I was trying to win, but actually I was trying to lose. But so it was hard to talk about taking my body into a casino with all the money that I'd worked hard for and giving it all away. But I needed to stop doing that. And for me to stop doing that, I needed to write about it to my mama slash the world. And also the hard part about that book is talking about like, eating a lot so like when I first sold that book it was called 30309 a fat black memoir but like I wasn't 309 I was like 319 you know what I'm saying like I was lying even then because I was like I don't want people to think I'm that fat you know what I'm saying just kind of fat and then when I was at Millsaps and all that weird shit was going on like I would just go through the dorm looking for uneaten pieces of pizza and you know so I could make 
a, a pie in the microwave and I didn't know at all I was depressed or sad or like going through I didn't, I didn't know what to call it but there was something fucked up going on with me psychologically and emotionally but I just thought I could muffle that thing in me with like mass amounts of food and that's harder to write about than like the starving like even the way I framed it to you just now I talked about the starving first cause that shit is easier to talk about than the parts of me that like were just like obsessed with like just eating until I just and and feeling good about it and then um and then not being able to see yourself it's like weird when you gain like 60 pounds in a semester but you look at yourself and you look the same but it's also weird when you're like you know you lose 150 pounds and you look at yourself and you still feel like you're like super big that shit is something that I don't know but I needed to write about it Mm -hmm. But also the easy, like you said, like it being easier to talk about starving yourself yeah. is also such a social construct it because is, right? when you're talking about starving yourself, there's even still that sick thing of like, but but I kind of looked good. That's the thing. That's why, I, like, that's the thing. Like people, eat fam, I could tell you so many stories. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would walk into gas stations and like dudes who would be like, who would want you to know they were visibly straight. Would be like, man, can I just tell you something? I'd be like, what? He's like, dude, you've got a perfect body. And I'd just be like, shut the fuck. You know, like in my mind, I'm like, stop, shut up, you know? But it's easy to talk about it because people perceive, like, you know, very thin, veiny bodies. But because, like, I looked so, like, you know, masculine and I was black, which I think also tends to heighten people's idea of masculinity. Nobody thought I was had an eating. Nobody, I don't think anybody thought I had an eating disorder. Nobody definitely told me. Everybody told me the opposite. Everybody was like, damn, you look so great. You look so good. I was never sleeping. I was working out fucking five, six hours a day and I wasn't eating. I was terrible. I was fucking t- tearing my body up. I'm not blaming nobody, but I'm saying like, it's just, that's why it's easier to talk about. The other one is really hard. How much of what you wrote about and some of the stuff that, you know, is so difficult to talk about, did your mom not? No. I mean, I didn't I didn't just write the book and give it to her. Like she was she I would write pieces and show it to her, but she didn't know anything about what was happening at the house where she would drop me off when she was at work. Lots of sexual violence happened. She didn't know she said she didn't know about what was happening with her student and me, who's her student was like twenty, twenty one, I was like nine. She didn't know about the she said she didn't know about the starving. I mean, that's the thing. People see what they want to see. She didn't know about the gambling. I knew about her gambling addiction because it was, you know, I was in the middle of that. Like, she was trying to get, she would do different things to get my money or people in our family's money. But she not, she had no idea that, like, I was, you know, I was addicted to that. Um, I talk about being, like, emotionally abusive to one of my partners who was, like, super not abusive to me. In her mind, she probably, I, I think she thought her son was, like, always like great in relationships you know what I'm saying or if things didn't work out it was just because like I come from one of those families like they always blame the, the girl <laughs> like they're always like ah, you know so um so she didn't know I mean that's why I wrote that book everything in that book I wrote for the most part is like stuff she didn't know about and I needed to write it to her so I could confront it myself because also stuff I didn't want to sit in but the book isn't just like you know 
horrible, terrifying stuff. There's also like lots of stuff she didn't know that made me super happy in that book. It made me feel really comforted. Like she didn't know. I don't think she knew how much I valued her love and she how much I value her her writerly teachings and how much I valued my friendships with people. I don't think she knew all of that. So there's a lot of stuff in there. She, that's the point. That's that's why I have a book because it was like, what doesn't my mama know about me, and and what can we do? We maybe need to start talking about, and that's really the basis of the book. Right. Well, it's really inspiring that talking about such tough things was done in a collaborative way. Yeah, I mean that that sure. to that's radical. Sure. So um, it's an honor to talk to you. Thank you. That's what's up. Thank you. Tripod is a production of WWNO New Orleans Public Radio in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Catch Tripod on air Thursdays during Morning Edition and again on Mondays during All Things Considered. And you can hear Tripod for free whenever you want by finding the Tripod podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on social media at Tripod Nola. Stay tuned for the finale episode coming at you in just a few weeks. Again, it was an absolute honor to speak with Kese Lehman. And you can find his books at any of your local bookstores here in New Orleans and most likely anywhere else that you are listening right now. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and I'll try pod you later. Bye.